0: This is the time of our service where we open God's word and I would invite you to turn to 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter two is where we will continue looking uh, as we've been doing on the past few months as we've been going through this uh, important letter by the Apostle Peter. Second Peter chapter 2. This is an explosive section, one commentator said. It's explosive because it says some pretty strong words. In fact, it's the section that I told you a few weeks ago is probably the reason this book is not taught a lot. It's just very, very strong language, words used in this particular section of 2 Peter. And I, you know, I thought about why is second, why is Peter so hard on these false teachers. That's what it's all about. You see that in verse one uh, false teachers who secretly introduce destructive heresies. You see that in verse one of chapter two. Why is Peter so hard on these individuals? Why does he talk like this? Why does he say these kinds of things? And, and just thinking about that, he, <clears throat> he is a pastor. He was called by Christ to shepherd the sheep, to feed the sheep. And So he's very concerned about when someone comes into their midst and brings destructive heresies or poison or comes in to somehow pollute the minds of the sheep that he is trying to feed. And uh, I think that's why he is so intense in this chapter and in this letter to seek to expose them, to paint a picture of them. A portrait of them, as some have said, so they'll be recognized and they'll stand out and they can be, as Paul said, marked out and understood who they are. I understand this somewhat as a pastor. You, you bring the word of God to the people that God has put in your care and you want to be diligent in that and uh, you get concerned when others bring in things from the outside, outside uh, you know there's the internet and there's television and there's books and all of those things and uh, so you know that people are hearing all kinds of things and you pray that you are equipping people well enough that they will have discernment. Uh, that is your great desire. And I believe we have a very discerning congregation I am thankful for that. Um, but it's still out there and it's still it's concerning when you see people led astray by false teachers or even teachers who proclaim unhelpful things and begin to pollute the mind uh, and the thinking of the church. And so that's why as shepherds we guard the doors, we guard the church, and that's what Peter is seeking to do is to guard the church. We live in a day, of time of uh, experiential Christianity, and uh, repentance is, is ascend. sinned. I've been thinking wrong. I've been doing wrong. I've been viewing things wrong. I need to line up with God's word. That's the biggest problem in our country, in our world, in Christianity, is we talk about the Bible a lot, but we don't recognize it as authoritative. I like the Bible until it tells me to do something I don't want to do, right? That's when it stops having authority in my life. And that's what you see in this this passage we're looking at here with these false teachers. They don't like authority. You see that in verse, look in verse um, uh, 10 of chapter 2. They despise authority. They despise authority. They don't want the authority of God's word. They don't want this man, the Lord Jesus Christ, to reign over us. You can't say, I want to follow Christ and not follow his word. It's his God, it's God breathed words. They despise the authority of Christ and his word. Um, They are an authority to themselves. They uh, give more authority to new messages that they get from God. New messages. They say, No, we need new things, new words from God. We want God to say something new. We we got this old stuff. We need something new. Um, They despise all the authorities that God has established even. The the leaders in the church, they definitely despise the elders of a local church. No doubt about that. And secondly, they despise... uh, the authority in the home. I was talking to somebody this past week who had to go up to Charleston to get their child out of a cult because that place became an authority in their lives to replace the parental authority. That happens. They want to be thought of as your community. They want to replace that family that you, life that you may never have experienced or were missing They despise God's authority and all the authorities that He has established. And it says in the verse nine, previous to that, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation. Talking about the context there, as you may recall, is the judgment that's coming on these false teachers, just like He judged uh, the world with Noah and judged Sodom and Gomorrah, and. And the angels came, and it was judged, and uh, Noah was spared, and Lot was spared, but judgment came. And Peter provided those two illustrations just to show that God's judgment's going to come. He's going to rescue the godly. Uh, They may have to go through things and difficulties, but he will rescue them from judgment, just like he did Lot and Noah. And secondly, to keep, under, uh, right, keep the unrighteous under punishment. For the unrighteous, the false teachers, all who reject Christ, they're objects of God's wrath. So this judgment is coming. If you know Christ, that is, your, that is your protection from the wrath of God right there, if you know Christ. He is the one that will shield you from the wrath to come. He is the ark. He is the ark. You need to be on that ark, when judgment comes. And so Peter has warned about that in this chapter. He says, verse 10, I didn't read all of that verse, but he said, they are those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires, and they're not true leaders, they're followers. You know what they are? They follow their own cravings. They follow their own lust. They follow their own desires. That is not, that is not being a leader. That's being a follower. You just go with your own sinful impulses, and that's what these people do, and that's how he's going to describe it now, in these verses that we're going to look at this morning. He's going to describe them in these kinds of areas that I've just mentioned to you. Um, let me just read this passage. This is where we're going to look at today. Ten, the second half of verse 10, describing them, stripping them wide open. This is what's inside of them. They may look like angels in light, of angels... Uh, Of of light like Satan does but they're really dark inside daring self will verse 10 says they do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties whereas angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord but these like unreasoning animals born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed reviling where they have no knowledge will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed Suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong, they counted a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are stains and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you. Having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed, accursed children, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, but he received a rebuke for his own transgression, for a mute donkey. Speaking with the voice of a man, restrain the madness of the prophet. Hebert in his commentary says this at the beginning. He says, Peter now plunges into a devastating full-length portrayal of the coming false teachers. The language is intense and colorful as it is scathing denunciation gushes forth in one sweeping torrent. To his prophetic eye, these sensual deceivers are already vividly present, and he employs the present, aorist, the present, aorist, and future tenses to paint their picture. With spirit-annoyed clarity, he sees the challenge that they raise. There can be no compromise with them. The faithful Christian must expose their presence and denounce them. And the reason Peter lays out His book with the first chapter being uh, salvation, Uh, know you're saved, be assured of your salvation. It's very important that you know you're saved and that you're assured of your salvation. It's very important, he also says in chapter one, that you know the scriptures, that you're certain of their inspiration by God and that God gave them to us and he's going to come to chapter three and he's going to say be certain of your sanctification that you're growing in grace he's going to say these things are so important that you be established in them so that you will be protected from what's in chapter two that's how he's laid out this short letter the first thing he mentions we notice in verse 10 is daring, self-willed, they do not tremble when they revile against angelic majesties. Well, what is that? What is that? Daring means they're bold, audacious men, brazen. They're self-willed men, self-pleasing, obstinate men, headstrong and stubborn. I just thought all these words, deviant. It's their way. It's their way. Theotrophies like that we see in Second John, he was like that, had his own way. John was going to come and rebuke him for that. Don't listen to what John says, Diotrephes would say, just what I say. You can read more about him in Second John. But the point is, you see how this is manifest. They do not tremble. They don't have fear or awe. I want you to follow me on this if you're looking at the verse. I'm I'm going from the King James, excuse me, the New American Standard Version. So just see if you can find where you're at if you're using a different translation. But they do not tremble. In other words, they have no fear. They have no awe. They rail and they speak against angelic majesties. What's Peter referring to angelic majesties? This is an interpretive issue. But here's the possibilities, and I'm going to tell you what I believe the correct one is based on the context. Some people say that's Christ. I don't believe so. I don't believe so. We've already touched on that. They despise authority. We got that already. Secondly, there are two other choices. First, some have said it refers to church leaders. Church leaders. The local church pastors they revile against them. They don't like what they're saying. They revile against them. The word angelic majesties means glorious ones. I like pastors. I like being a pastor, but I know I'm not glorious. you understand? I fall way short of that. So I don't, I don't like that view either. The correct view, I believe, based on the context, is he's talking about angels, as the New American Standard says angelic majesties and so what group of angels are we talking about I believe because of the contrast with verse 11 in verse 10 he's talking about demons they revile against fallen angels because in chapter, in verse 11 you're talking about the good angels whereas angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord in other words, the glorious ones are being slandered, and he's talking about demons are not being held in awe. Stay with me. The good question to ask right now is why would the false teachers be doing this toward demons, and why would that be so bad for the false teachers to revile against the fallen angels? Why would that be a bad thing? Keep in mind, one, we don't know. (laughs) We don't know. He doesn't tell us. We don't really know exactly why. I think we can draw a couple of conclusions, educated guesses on this. Keep in mind that Peter, like Paul, would view the false teachers as being in league with the demons. They're in league with them. They teach doctrines of demons. And for that reason, they're just making a joke about that. They're just making, they're blasting them. Um, They're just saying who knows what. They're not holding them in any awe or any uh, fear whatsoever. Secondly, they don't believe in the second coming, or as we're going to see in chapter three later, which is a coming of judgment. They don't believe in that. Therefore, it's mocking. It's a mocking they're, they're doing toward these particular angelic majesties. We mock them to show you what we think. Now, that's possible. I don't know. I think, though, we do have some modern-day applications of this, and stay with me on this. If you're in liberal theology, for example, if you're a liberal theologian, a liberal pastor, many of them do not believe in the Satan or in demons, anything supernatural. And so they revile these angelic majesties. They do not hold them in awe They deny their existence. That would be one way, a modern day way to look at that verse. Another modern way and more closer, a little closer to our thinking would be that there are some, there are some who act as if they have power over Satan. You follow me? They act as if they have power over Satan. In other words, instead of holding him in awe of the position that God has given him for this season, prince of the power of the air, an angelic being, a step above man in creation, instead of holding him in any kind of awe, men act like they have power over him, and they can command Satan to do things. They can command Satan to go into the pit. They can command Satan to be bound. They can command Satan to, to, they can rebuke him. They talk to him, not of any awe for the power that he has, but more out of their own power that they believe they have over him. They talk about Satan as a cartoon character. I was talking about this about the liberal theologians. They look at him more as a cartoon character. They look at him as more uh, of just uh, evil but no personification of evil uh, where these folks at the other extreme look at Satan as very real. In fact, he's so real that every sickness you have is there's a demon behind it. Every um, bad thing that happens to you is a demon behind it. Every sin that you commit, the devil made me do it. Folks, I'm just saying these are things that are wrong, think, wrong thinking about Satan and are ways that he is not held in awe in the sense of the power that he has. And to think wrong about him is to minimize and to make it sound like I have the authority now, I have the power to tell him what to do. I can control Satan. I've heard, you've heard those speakers in some charismatic um, circles, some spiritual warfare circles, talk, we're to talk to Satan like that. And we've talked about that in the past. Um, and I don't know if these false teachers in Peter's day were doing that or not, but we certainly do see it Today. Listen, when I am pressured or tempted by the enemy, and he does, he seeks to deceive us. Here's what we do. Let me read to you back from 1 Peter chapter 5. Let me just read this to you. You can turn and look it if you want to. It's 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9. He says, Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking somewhere one to devour. Just think, a bit, think about this just for a moment. He's not bound, is he? Does that verse say he's bound? No, he roars around like a roaring lion. You may say, I'm bind you, Satan, but I want to tell you something. He gets loose, and five seconds later, he's loose. That's just nonsense. One day, Satan will be bound. Revelation 20, he will be bound. God will do that. But to say that I somehow, somehow have the power To bind him is ridiculous because he just gets right back out. But resist him, verse 9 says, firm in your faith, and that's it. You you resist him by being firm in your faith. James 4, 8, 7 and 8, submit therefore to God, resist the devil. Here's Here's how you deal with Satan. You submit to God and you say no to the devil and he will flee from you. Ephesians says, do not give the devil an opportunity. We're given all kinds of instructions, but nowhere are we told to bind him. We're nowhere we told to even really talk to him. Nowhere are we told to cast out demons from one another. If you're a Christian, you have a demon, you're not a Christian. Christians don't have demons. Christians certainly get bothered by temptations and things like that, no doubt about it but no demon can possess a believer. Nowhere are we told to cast demons out of one another. If I want to help someone that was demon-oppressed, and I would preach the gospel to them. I'd preach the gospel. So it's arrogance. It's arrogance to talk like that, to, to think you have this kind of authority over Satan. Uh, they are from a different realm. They are powerful, um, and false teachers just trivialize it. He is a roaring lion. He does seek to devour, but to trivialize it um, is displaying their arrogance. And that's his point. I think that's his point because he goes into verse 11 and he does the contrast. Notice it back to 2 Peter chapter 2. He goes into verse 11. He says, Whereas angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. Not even the good angels talk like this about Other angels, about the demons. See what he's saying? And yet you have these false teachers who would revile and act like they have authority over these. Turn to Jude real quick. Jude is toward the book of Revelation, toward the end of your Bible. Jude 8. Jude is very similar to 2 Peter. Not sure which was written first, but very similar In Jude, verse 8, Yet in the same way, these men also by dreaming defile the flesh and reject authority and revile angelic majesties. And then notice, this is why I think this is what we're talking about. Now, a good angel, if you say that angelic majesties in verse 8 is what I just said, demons. Now, in verse 9, Michael, a good angel, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses... Satan wanted the body of Moses, so I guess he could get people to worship it. Uh, the Jews revered Moses so highly. But Michael did not dare pronounce against him Satan a railing judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you, the Lord will, or in other words, the Lord will take care of you. And so that's that's the point of that, those two verses. They are arrogant in terms of how they deal with the devil, (laughs) thinking they have control over him. Um, And I think think that is a warning to us. We should not mess around with tarot cards and Ouija boards and witchcraft and divination and horoscopes and all that stuff. Leviticus 19 speaks to some of that, to get in touch with the spirit world. Don't give Satan an opportunity. Look at verse twelve, Second Peter 2, verse 12. Back to Second Peter 2, verse 12. Continuing under their arrogance, he says, But these false teachers, verse 12, like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed, suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong. So but these, verse 12, but these, he goes back to the false teachers. They're arrogant. They have no awe of, to the power of good angels or bad angels. Now he uses some really strong language, and he calls them unreasoning animals. If you were to talk like this today, oh my God, you'd be canceled in two seconds. But look how Peter's talking about. They're unreasoning animals. Jesus calls them Wolves. Paul calls them dogs. Peter somewhere else is going to call them dogs that return to their own vomit. Why all these references to animals? And the point is, there they are humans for sure, but they are humans who are acting like animals. His point is, and they're going to die like animals. They're like predators. Wild Predators. They're irrational. They do things by instinct. They don't do things by reason and intellect. This animal-like behavior. Think about that. This is their instinct. That's what, your, that's what animals do. That's what, your, that's what your dog does. Your cat does. It's they, they do things by instinct. They don't stop and think about it too long. They just, what instinct says. They are guided by, in, by their feelings and they just do whatever they want. Reviling where they have no knowledge because it's not based on intellect, intelligence. And you can say, well, they're sincere. That has nothing to do with it. Has nothing to do with it. They function in the flesh. That's what it's about. It's not in the spirit. They can only act out of their flesh because that's their instinct to behave that way. It's like It's like putting food in a mouse trap. That's the they go take it, the bait. Instinct goes goes for the food. And they will be destroyed like animals, captured and killed. Philippians, you don't have to turn there to this verse either, but Philippians 3:18 and 19. For many walk of whom I often told you, and now tell you, even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. That's Philippians 3:18. Whose end is destruction, whose god is their appetite, and whose glory is their is in their shame. They set their mind on earthly things. That's their instinct—temporal, earthly things—and they will face destruction. They're also pleasure seekers. The point number two, they're pleasure seekers. You see that in verse 13, second half of verse 13. They counted a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are stains and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you, having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed, accursed children. The word pleasure, hedonistic. They live For pleasure they live for themselves they do their pleasures in broad daylight don't know exactly what these pleasures are but knowing the Roman times in which they were living uh, shameful drunkenness uh, sexual immorality even the Romans thought it was shameful to do those kinds of things in the daytime Okay to do them at night in Roman mindset, but don't do them during the daytime. These guys will do it even in the daytime. They don't try to hide anything. They're shameless. They are stains and blemishes. They are dirt dirt spots and scabs. That's what he says. They they sneak into the church and they're dirt spots and scabs. They deface the beauty of of the body of Christ. There's nothing Christ-like about them. Uh, Peter is just really disgusted with them. You get the point? He's disgusted with them. Uh, They're not real believers. He goes on to say, and as they carouse with you, that's an interesting statement there. They they feast with you. They take a meal with you. it's also the idea of the love feast, and we're going to see that in Jude in just a moment. But the love feast, those love feasts were tied with the communion. They would take communion and afterwards have a love feast where people would bring food and share it with the poor. And you remember in uh, 1 Corinthians, they were abusing the love feast. They were coming to the love feast and getting drunk. They were coming to the love feast and... Um, not providing anything for the poor. They were just hoarding everything for themselves. Uh, Something that was designed to be something really special in the body of Christ to bring unity and provide the needs of the poor. The Corinthians were abusing. That's the same idea here, That what they're doing. They saw the love feast or these church picnics, basically, as an opportunity for indulgence. They saw as an opportunity to, in these casual uh, events, they saw them as opportunities to come into the church. Look at Jude 12. Flip back over to Jude. Look at Jude 12. In Jude 12, it says, These are the men who are hidden reefs. You know what a hidden reef is. You can't see it. Below. It's just below the water. You can't see it. It's there, but you can't see it. That's how they're doing in your love feast, he's saying. When they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves, clouds without water. They, they promise, they look like they're gonna, it's going to rain, but it, nothing comes out. Carried along by winds, autumn trees, without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted. Uh, they blend in. They care for themselves. And their agenda is to fulfill their own desires. Notice they have v- verse 14 back in 2 Peter 2 Peter 2.14, they have eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. And this is what they're doing. Their their eyes are full of adultery. Their eyes are full of the adulteress, literally. Uh, Every woman they see is a potential partner for immorality. Uh, They evaluate every woman this way. That's their eyes. They think like this, and that's what they do. They try to find unstable souls. They try to entice unstable souls. Uh, They try to entice. They try to catch with bait. And you can see how this would happen. uh, just the prestige that many of these false teachers probably experienced in the adoration of other people there were many of them. Many will follow them, we were told earlier in Second Peter. They're popular. They're wealthy. And they would seek to entice unstable souls. Um, they would bait, dangle that out in front of people. 2 Timothy 3 says, For among them, he's talking about false teachers, for among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women, weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses. Women need to be aware of them. Women need to be aware of these men. You think about the church has been marked by scandals like this, has it not? When it comes to adultery. Todd Bentley, who I mentioned earlier, um, he was called a prophet, one of the prophets. Chidvinian, I I think I I don't know how to pronounce his name, but Billy Graham's son-in-law. Yeah, got it. He was a proponent of antimonianism, meaning no law. Um, And he lived that way like he was under no rules. No law, no rules to restrain the flesh. Anything goes in that way of thinking. And then we saw what happened with Ravi Zacharias. What in the world? Then we saw what happened with the leaders of Hillsong and the leaders of other ministries like that. The church has been plagued with false teachers who... Or teachers who have gone into those kinds of scandals. I read it to you earlier, Paul says in Romans 16, mark them out, mark them out. And then finally, notice verse 14, in the middle of verse 14, they have agreed for material gain. Back in 2 Peter chapter 2, agreed for material gain. Having a heart trained in greed, accursed children, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. But he received rebuke for his own transgression, for a mute donkey, speaking with the voice of a man, restrained the madness of the prophet. Uh, These are experts when it comes to greed because they've had so much practice. Um, The word... uh, The word says the word "trained." There is the word we get our word "gymnasium" from. They've lots of practice at this. They've been doing it for so long. They have greedy, greedy hearts. I mentioned this back up in verse three of this chapter. We talked about that. Uh, They will exploit you in their greed. They're consistent in their greed. They're motivated by money. They're motivated by material gain. They they totally violate what Paul and Peter say. Don't go into the ministry for sordid gain, selfish gain. They totally violate that. They think that godliness is a means to gain, Paul says in Timothy. They think that religion is a way to gain financially financially. That's their thinking. And they will exploit you. They will use you. They will come up with all kinds of ways to get you, to help them get richer and richer. They are cursed children. Notice the end of verse 14. They're not true believers. Jesse Duplantis, I don't know if you've ever heard of this guy I've seen him on TV a few times on Christian television, he said this his name is Jesse Duplantis I don't know if he's still living to tell you the honest truth but he said this, if you give money to the poor, you're not going to get a great return but if you give money above and beyond to Jesse Duplantis ministry you will have a great return God will repay you 30, 60 100 fold where does he get that? And I remember years ago, uh, old Roberts said um, he was gonna, God would kill him if he did not collect enough money to build either some tower or the medical school. I can't remember what it was. But what manipulation? That God's gonna kill you? Well, you know what? Maybe that might not, you know. I don't know. Verse 15 says, They forsake the right way. See that in verse 15, forsaking the right way, the narrow way, the way to eternal life, the way that leads to life, and they've gone instead the way of greed. There is a biblical name associated with greed, and it's the name of Balaam. I don't know how much you know about Balaam, but Peter uses him to illustrate this. He uses this Old Testament character that you read about in the book of Numbers. Um. Numbers is the book we're studying in, in our early morning Bible or earlier Bible study hour, uh, just before this service. So uh, I'm going to jump ahead to where we are in that class. But is it Numbers 22? If you want to just turn there for a moment, Numbers 22. I just want to highlight a couple things to you. Balaam. There are two names in this section that you want to know: Balaam and Balak. Balaam is the He's the prophet, but he's a, he's a soothsayer. He's a false prophet. Uh, he does know some things about God, and God does speak to him in this passage. But um, Balak is the king of the Moabites. And basically the context of Numbers 22 is the children of Israel are getting closer to the promised land and they come to the land of Moab. They're just outside the land of Moab. Balak sees them coming. He's heard about them and all the things their God has done for them. He's, he's fearful of them coming through their land to get to the promised land. And so Balak, the king, calls for Balaam, the prophet. He says, come, Balaam, I need you. Come and put a curse on these people. Because I'm really scared of them. notice what he says in verse 5 what was written in verse 5 so he sent messengers to Balaam this is Balak he sends messengers to Balaam the son of Beor at Pethor, which is near the river in the land of the sons of his people to call him saying behold a people come out of Egypt behold they cover the surface of the land and they are living opposite of me now therefore please come Curse this people for me, since they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I may be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land. For I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and whom you curse is cursed. So the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed, notice, with fees for divination. This guy charges. He's a prophet for profit. That's what he is. That's exactly what he is. They come to Balaam. They report what the king wants. And like I say, he he does have a knowledge, some true knowledge of God. And God does tell him things. In fact, God is going to tell Balaam not to do it. Don't you do it. I have blessed those people. I have blessed the Israelites. Don't you curse them. He's very clear on that. They send more money. They offer more money. Very enticing to a man like Balaam. Balaam is still... Fears God, but Balaam, uh, Balaam wants to go. You get the idea That's all pretense. He's putting on pretense. This is kind of the conclusion you draw once you read this whole passage. Putting on pretense of not wanting to go, but really wants to go. Really wants to go back and, and see the king and talk about this money thing some more. All of that. He goes back to the king, and God is angry with him, we're told, in this passage and he gets on his donkey, and he's riding to the king. And that's where we pick up in what Peter is talking about in 2 Peter 2. Notice verse 28. He is riding his donkey, and an angel of the Lord appears in the path, sort of blocking him in, can't go anywhere. Balaam starts to beat the donkey, because the donkey falls down. The donkey sees the angel of the Lord. Evidently, Balaam does not. The donkey's scared, runs off into a field, all this stuff. He just keeps beating him. And notice in verse 28, And the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey. She said to Balaam, What have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? Now, the greater miracle here is not the donkey speaking. It's the fact that Balaam talks back to him. That's the greater miracle. Then Balaam said to the donkey, verse 29, because you have made a mockery of me. If there had been a sword in my hand, I would have killed you by now. The donkey said to Balaam, am I not your donkey on which you have ridden all your life to this day? I've been a faithful donkey. Have I, not, have I ever been accustomed to do so to you? And he said, no. Then at that point, the Lord opens the eyes of Balaam. He saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with a drawn sword in his hand and bowed all the way to the ground. The point is, of all that, is this was at a crisis in the history of Israel as they're about to go into the land. They're trying to get a prophet to curse Israel. Balaam is called called an unbeliever in this this book, in Jude and in Revelation, and he's associated here with um, greed, greed. In verse 16, he received, back to 2 Peter chapter 2, 2 Peter chapter 2, he received a rebuke for his own transgression. He was going against what God, he knew God did not want him to do. For a mute donkey speaking with the voice of a man restrained the madness of the prophet. And so the point of that is false Teachers follow the way of Balaam. They get off the right way, and they go the way of Balaam. They go along for personal gain, greed, and covetous. That's the reason Peter uses this Old Testament example. Have you ever noticed that the prosperity, te- a lot of false teachers are drawn to the f- prosperity gospel? Have you noticed that? that? Because that gospel doesn't preach a true gospel. That gospel simply talks about health and wealth. It's simply a gospel that appeals to covetousness. Fred Price said this. He goes, he was a prosperity theology guy, false teacher. Bible says Jesus has left us an example we should follow in his steps. That's the reason I drive a Rolls Royce. I am following Jesus' steps. I don't know where they get this stuff. I don't. I kind of go, what are you basing that on? But that is what they think of Jesus. That is not the Jesus of the Bible. They just think he's a king. If he's a king, he's got everything. I guess that's that's it. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation. Paul tells Timothy, and a snare, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. The love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. Money's not evil. Being wealthy is not evil. We've said this before. But longing for it have caused many to wander away from the faith. Let me just read this in thirty seconds. This is J.C. Ryle. What do you do? How do you protect yourself? J.C. Ross says it so well. You live in a world where your soul is in constant danger. Enemies are around you on every side. Your own heart is deceitful. Bad examples are numerous. Satan is always laboring to lead you astray. Above all, false doctrine and false teachers of every kind abound. This is your great danger. To be safe, you must be well armed. You must provide yourself with the weapons which God has given you for your help. You must store your mind with Holy Scripture. This is to be well armed." Arm yourself with a thorough knowledge of the written word of God. Read your Bible regularly. Become familiar with your Bible. Neglect your Bible, and nothing that I know of can prevent you from error if a plausible advocate of false teaching shall happen to meet you. Make it a rule to believe nothing except it can be proved from Scripture. The Bible alone is infallible. Do you really use your Bible as much as you ought? And he goes, if so, you, excuse me, if, if, if you're not, No, he says this. There are many today who believe the Bible, yet read it very little. Does your conscience tell you that you are one of those persons who reads it very little? If so, you are the man who is likely to be carried away by some false teacher for a time. It will not surprise me if I hear that one of these clever, eloquent men who can make a convincing presentation is leading you into error. You are in need of truth. No wonder if you are tossed to and fro like a cork in the waves. All these are uncomfortable situations. I want you to escape them all. Take the advice I offer you today. Do not merely read your Bible a little, but read it a great deal. Remember your many enemies. Be armed. I can't say it better than that. He wrote that in the late 1800s. It's still true today. It was true in Peter's time. Father, thank you for this day, this time. God, I thank you that we are armed with your word this morning. I thank you God that we are given the scriptures by you the truth by you that we might be rooted and grounded and not tossed about by every wind of doctrine I thank you father that though these words that we read on the pages of scripture are strong and to the point and direct I thank you father that You know the hearts of men, and your spirit has revealed that to us. And I pray, God, that you would help us to not be fooled by nice, pleasant words or nice presentations. Father, but we would be looking to your word for truth. We would be good Bereans. Just ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.